Good morning, everyone. Wonderful music. Thank you, Sherry, and all of you on the platform. Thank you, congregation. Good singing. It's great. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. I am John Marshall, and this is my wife of 52 years, Ruth, right here. 50, 52, 52 wonderful years. 52, 52 wonderful, wonderful years, years, that's for sure. She always reads my scripture and prays before I preach, so that's what she'll be doing here in just a minute. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, I will be your interim pastor, and I will be here. I'll be here until you call somebody, so I would expect to be here the next three or four Sundays. It's a great honor to be with you. It's a great privilege to be your interim pastor. This is my seventh interim. I retired from Second Baptist six years ago. This is my seventh interim, and we love doing this. Uh, by being interim, I get to preach, which is really important to preachers. I get to preach. But you know what? I also have a people. And Ruthie and I love people. We are people, people. We really are. We love... And I've learned it's not enough just to preach Sunday after Sunday. I need a people to love, to care for, to share with week after week. So we hope that we'll be a blessing to you. And we know that you're going to be a blessing to us. So let's just uh, get on this ride and let's enjoy it, okay? Let's have a good time. For the next few months, we'll just enjoy what we're doing as the Pastor Search Committee seeks God's choice for your leadership in the meantime, I'll come week after week. I'll put the Bible on the pulpit, and we'll go from there. And today we're at Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. All right, Ruthie, go. We are so honored to be here and to get to be a part of your family. Thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> would you please stand for the reading of God's beautiful word? <clears throat> I'm reading from my favorite translation, the New Living Translation. <clears throat> Girlfriends, oh, this is not the Bible. I'm sorry. <laughs> Girlfriends, I have a gift for you next Sunday. So be sure and be here and invite your girlfriends, okay? It's, um, it's just a little something from me to you. So be sure and be here next week. Okay, now let's go on to, you know, words the Lord would have us to hear. Sorry. Okay. <clears throat> Beginning with verse 34 of Matthew 22. These are my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I just say this is exactly the way to live our lives according to Jesus. And Ruthie, not in that order. <clears throat> when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. A second, said Jesus, 
A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Will you pray with me, please? Father dear, how precious it is to stand in this place, to speak of you, to learn of you, to sing praises to you. Lord, I pray we will bring glory to you and that we will feel your smile as you look on us. Lord, we come to you in all different states, some on the mountain, some of us in the valley, some of us wounded, some of us believing wholeheartedly, some of us doubting, some of us maybe wondering why we're here. Some of us who came really didn't want to come, but we're pressured to be here. See all of our hearts, Lord. May we be yielded to you. Amen. May we remember why we're here and your great, great sacrifice for us. Lord, I am so unworthy. We are so unworthy. Let us set aside all. Leave it all at the foot of your cross. And may we be found just saying, glory, glory, glory. Holy, holy, holy. Oh, we love you. We love you, precious Father, beautiful Savior, Holy Spirit. Amen. We do not and we will not. Forget the cross. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In your holy name I pray. May it be so. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Thank you, Dolly. I love you, baby. You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and Luke adds and strength. In other words, it is possible for one passion to be so all-encompassing it overwhelms every other interest in life. You sometimes find yourself so deep in thought with something that you forget to eat. You might forget an appointment. You're so caught up in something you just don't even want to sleep. Well, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that a holy obsession can dominate a person's thought patterns. It is possible for you to be so overwhelmed with thoughts of God that everything else kind of fades into the background. Jesus told us and commands us that God should be our number one fixation. And this is not for the great Christians. This was not just for the apostles. This wasn't for the bluebirds versus the buzzards. First class versus second class. Every one of you in this room. Every one of you. You were created in such a way that you can love God as much 
as you believe the greatest Christian you've ever known of or heard of, you can love them that much. Jesus gives this command to every one of us, all of us, just ordinary, everyday people. He says, here's the most important thing. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The call to be a Christian is the call to give yourself to someone outside this world, to yield yourself to someone greater than yourself. And no life is fulfilled until it is wholly engrossed in this one obsession. For believers, there is only one first right thing. Very simple here. You don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to figure this out. For a believer, there's only one grand purpose in life. If someone walks up to you to say, what's the most important thing in the world? What's the most important thing in your life? You should be able to answer instantly. There should be no hesitation. You should know better than anything else in your life what is the number one most important thing of your existence. It's very easy to pursue God, to please God, to love Him more than anything else in the world, to be obsessed with Him. This is what it means to be a Christian. Not just the great Christians, all Christians. Now, for about 40 years, I decided... Because I wanted to remember that's the number one most important thing in all the world. I wanted to give myself a statement. I wanted to give myself a phrase that I would hold on to. I could have said to love God most, to pursue God, to try to have peace. I could have, I could have used a lot of phrases to make sure that I understood always this is my thought. This is who I am. This is the number one thing in my life. And here's the phrase I came up with, 40 Years ago, holiness matters most. Say it with me, please. Holiness matters most. Thank you to all ten of you. Come on, everybody. Say it with me. Holiness matters most. It is the most important lesson of life. Now, there are other ways you can say it, but that is the most important lesson to learn in life. Now, why do I say that? The angels in heaven, the cherubim. The seraphim, all of them around the throne, they do not say love, love, love. God is love is not the most important trait of God. They do not say justice, justice, justice. No, justice is not the most important trait of God. The angels of heaven surrounding the throne, they say holy, holy, holy. Now, in Hebrew... Hebrew does not emphasize the qualifiers. In other words, if the native language of heaven were English rather than Hebrew, we would say, the angels would be saying, holy, holier, holiest. But since in Hebrew you don't emphasize the qualifiers, for instance, Jesus, when Jesus would talk, what would he say? If he wanted to make a really important statement, what would he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, verily, verily. You say the same word over again. Well, in heaven, in the native tongue of heaven, the angels say, holy, holy, holy. Now, the word means separate, distinct, the one like nobody else. The angels say, this is the most important trait of God. Holy, holy, holy. For eternity, forever, listen to me, forever. It's going to be like the background music of heaven. You're going to hear it all over heaven forever. Holy 
You're going to hear that word, holy, holy. You're going to hear it echoing off of the throne, holy, holy, holy. So if God is distinct, if God is separate, if God is imminent, then the most important thing of life is that I live my life in such a way that I'm trying to become like Him, the one who is distinct, the one separate. And therefore, I come to Him on the inside first. I call this being holy, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, holy, completely holy. On the inside, I want to know Him. I want to love Him. I want to serve Him. I want to commune with Him. I want to enjoy Him in the morning. I want to enjoy Him in the music. Like we've been saying this morning, Sherry led us in. I want to enjoy Him. It's an inside thing that then because I want to be like Him, it starts to change me on the outside. That's what I mean by holy, holy. Completely holy. Inside, longing to be like Him. Longing to love Him. Longing to commune with Him. And therefore, it changes my life it is the most important fact of my existence. Holiness matters most. Say it, please. Holiness matters most. One more time. Holiness matters most. It's the most important lesson of life. I beg you, don't have to learn it the hard way. One of the greatest men who ever lived was D.L. Moody. You are in this room today because of a man named Dwight Lyman Moody. He was a pastor in Chicago 150 years ago. He was also a great evangelist. Um, he was the first one taught us how to raise money. D.L. Moody, he taught us how to handle money. Uh, D.L. Moody was the first one taught us how to reach the poor in the cities. Uh, D.L. Moody was a great soul winner. He's the one that taught us how to win souls after he became a Christian, he made a covenant with God. He would witness to a lost person every day of his life. And he missed a few days, but not many. He lived in an apartment above an area where people would gather. And every night when he'd go in to take his clothes off to go to bed, if he had not witnessed someone, he'd look out the window. If his clothes back on, he'd go downstairs and he'd witness somebody before he went to bed. He taught us all of these things. He's the one that taught us how to do mass evangelism. Billy Sunday copied him. And then Billy Graham copied Billy Sunday. So... D.L. Moody stands apart. He almost stands alone in our American history. But he didn't become a Christian until he was an adult. His Sunday school teacher led him to Christ. It's a great story. I don't have time for that today. When D.L. Moody was a teenager, he was out in his cornfield one day, hoeing corn. He was with an older guy, and all of a sudden, the older guy started crying. And D.L. said, well, what's wrong? And so the man leaned on his hoe and began to tell D.L. his life story. D.L.'s not a Christian. He's just a teenager. He's just listening to the story. And the man said he'd left home years ago to go seek his fortune. And he said the last thing his mother said to him as he left was, Son, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. So the fellow went on and said, but I wanted to be rich, so I thought I'd worry about God later. So he went to his church for the first time. He'd been out for a little while, decided to go to church. He got to church. He walked in. He sat down. And the preacher picked at his text, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. The guy said, I looked around. I said, that's my mother's verse. I wonder if that pastor knows me. I wonder if he knows who I am. 
He felt conviction, but he said, no, I want to get rich first. So he said, no. Time went by. He's trying to pursue his wealth. Decided to go to church again. Went to church a second time. Walking to church, sat down. The pastor uses his text, seek ye first the kingdom of God. The old man said he was moved by that. But he wanted to be wealthy first. So he said no to God. Years went by. One more time, he decided to go to church. Third time. Walked in, sat down. The preacher preached, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He said he was so moved, he had to grip the few. He had to hold on to keep from yielding to the call of God on his life. He said, No, sir, I was determined to make my wealth first. He said, I walked out the door. He said to young D.L., he said, And ever since that time, Every sermon I've ever had, I've heard, has had no more effect on me than on that rock right there. And he hit it with his hoe. Dale grew up, moved to Chicago. Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, knew that Dale was not a believer. Knew exactly when Dale closed his store every day, shoe salesman. Sunday school teacher showed up right at closing time, stepped in, locked the door behind him, sat down with Dale Moody and led him to Christ. First person D.L. thought of was the man in the field. Went from Chicago back to Massachusetts, asked his mother, he said, I need to go over and talk to that man about Jesus. And she said, oh, D.L., I'm so sorry. He's, he's not here anymore. He lost his mind. Every time anybody talks to him, he says, seek first kingdom of God. Seek first kingdom of God. So they sent him to an insane asylum. Two years went by, D.L. was home visiting with his mother. And she said, by the way, D.L., he's home. He's lost his mind, but they've sent him, his mind is still gone, but they've sent him home to die. D.L., as I said, would witness to a lost person every day, jumped up from the table, went right straight to his house, and there was the man sitting on the front porch. D.L. got right up in his face, tried to plead with him about Jesus, and all the man would do is he'd look at D.L. and he'd say, seek first kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Moody wrote of that day. Reason had reeled and tottered from its throne. But the text was still there. God sent that arrow down into his soul. Long years had rolled away and he could not draw it out. The most important lesson of life Love God first. Holiness matters most. Say it. Holiness matters most. A life lived on here. Don't learn it the hard way. I'm 71 years old now. I've been preaching 56 years. I have a degree in mathematics. For those of you who do not have a degree in math, I was 15 when I started. 15 to 56 equals 71. I've been preaching since I was 15. My first sermon, young people, you're going to love this. My first sermon at age 15 was on the difference between love and lust. I didn't know anything about love, but lust and I were good friends. All right, so. Second sermon. Oh, you think that one's funny? Now, this, I'm 15 now. Second sermon, age 15. How to raise godly children. 
Actually, it was a pretty good sermon because I just told people what my parents had done. 56 years in the ministry. I've now lived long enough to stand before you and tell you about my childhood friends who chose not to love God first. Who decided that holiness does not matter most. Closest friend to church, grew up, committed the sin of marrying an unbeliever. His whole adult life has been a spiritual zero. Zero. Nothing. My second closest friend in church committed the only triple murder in the history of my city. The state of Missouri executed him. My third dear friend has gone through much wealth and many wives. My sixth grade patrol duty partner Walked into the bedroom one day, saw his wife in bed with another man. He reached over, he opened a drawer where he kept a pistol. He grabbed the pistol. He sent the adulterer into eternity and sent himself to prison for life. And then, mirror, mirror on the wall. She was the fairest of them all. I grew up on the slum. I grew up in the slums of Cape Girardeau, Missouri. I learned how to curse in the third grade, how to fight, be rough. To survive. But even, even then, there was this one girl. She was pure. She was clean. Every guy wanted her to be his girlfriend. She was always that way. But then, when she became a teenager, almost exactly the same time that I began to move toward God, She started moving away from God. And somewhere on our path in our late teens, we crossed. And she went her way, and I went the Lord's way. At our 20th class reunion, at 38, she looked 58. Sin had etched itself even in her body. And I could go on. I've got more. I'm telling you what happens to people who don't love God first. Who don't believe holiness matters most. But I'll pass it off to you. You be the judge. Now you stand here as the critic. I dare you to defy this statement I'm getting ready to make. I submit for your consideration that the majority of the pain you see every day can be traced to someone who broke the first commandment. Not all of it. We live in a fallen world, so not all of it. But I submit to you, when you look around, much of the pain you see every day, and we all see massive amounts of it, I submit to you that much of it, the majority of it, is because someone did not believe holiness matters most. Because somebody decided they would not love God first. They would go their own way. Folks, we cannot afford to not love God first. If we do not love God first, it demands a price too high to pay. Now, one of the things you're going to learn about me 
is I have a tremendously high regard for God. I, I don't make jokes about God. I don't make jokes about the things of the Lord. When it comes to God, my daddy was a preacher and he taught us when it comes to God, he is the Holy One separate and you honor him. So what I'm getting ready to say, if you misunderstand, you will think I'm slamming God. So you listen to me very closely. I don't go deep very often. I'm, I'm a, I live on the surface. I preach on the surface to help people live their lives. That's what's where I live, right here at this level. What you've been hearing me, you've understood every word I've said. That's where I live. But every once in a while, you have to go a little bit deeper. And I'm going to go a little bit deeper now. And you've got to listen to me closely. Now listen to me. If God is not your first love, then He becomes on a functional level, your antagonist rather than your protagonist. If you don't love God first, now listen to me. If you don't love God first, then in your everyday life, God becomes your foe, not your friend. Your hinderer, not your helper. See, if God is not the first thing in your life, here you are going through life. Watch this. You're going through life. You're trying to make progress. And you think you need to do this, you need to do that. And why do you keep running into obstacles? Why is it that nothing is working out? Is it possible because God, the number one thing He wants for you is for you to love Him, and so He keeps pushing you in the direction of loving Him? No, I want you over here. Now, Lord, I'm trying to do this. Lord, would you help me do this? Would you help me do well at this job? And the Lord is saying, well, I really need you to do this more than that. If we don't love God first, life gets out of kelter. It, it spins out of control. There's always something not quite right. There's always a little chaos, a little confusion, all because we fail to love God first. And listen to me. Life is hard enough without having God against us. Somebody say amen right there. Thank you to all ten of you. Let's do that again. Life is hard enough with having God, without having God against us. Somebody say amen right there. Let's not compound our misery. It is our union with Him. It is our pursuit of holiness. It is the desire to commune in Him. And this is where the power for the Christian life comes from. See, we have this misunderstanding that God gives everything we need for the Christian life, puts on a shelf over here, and we come, Oh God, oh God, give me love, give me joy, give me peace, as if it's over here on the shelf. And that, that misses the whole point. When you come before God, you say, God, give me love, joy, and peace. It's not on a shelf. It's in here where Jesus is, and it's like a membrane. And as you love God first, the love, joy, and peace, comes, they come across the membrane into you. Your holiness, the life you live outwardly, is because of an inward holiness, because you're loving Jesus and all the power that you need, all the strength, all the peace that you need is here. And it comes across the membrane from Jesus to you. And if you don't realize that, if you don't realize that the strength is not in your begging and in your pleading, but in this communion here on the inside, you're going to miss out on the best parts of the Christian life. So in the routine activities of daily life, you learn to commune. You love God first when you're at the red light. Your thoughts should rise up. When you get up in the morning before your feet touch the floor, you, you should have already thought about Him. And at night, when you lift your feet off the floor to get into bed, you should think about Him. And for those of you who have 
insomnia trouble like I have. You should have your regimen of prayer. Do you, ha do you have your system? Do, do you understand in the middle hours of the night, instead of being upset and aggravated, you begin to pray. It's in the relationship. There's something about you and the Lord talking to each other in the quiet of the night. The power of the Christian life is not in words, ever. We don't believe in magic. It's not the words. It's never the words. The power of the Christian life is in the relationship and the words matter only if they are picturing what is already happening on the inside. If you're not walking close with Him, if you're not communing with Him, if there's not holiness in here, your prayers don't get any higher than that ceiling right there. It is realizing He's near, sensing that He is with us, consciously loving Him. That's where the power comes from. Because that's true, probably the greatest danger that you will face as a Christian is living a carnal life. Now, let me explain that to you. The great danger of the Christian life is you start doing it. You have a calling in life. You feel God's called you. You might be a great teacher, a great preacher, you know, a great mother, a great father, whatever, whatever it is. So here you are. All right. And you know your power is in you staying close to Jesus. The power is here in the relationship. Well, here's the danger. As time goes by, you're still doing what you're doing, but you're not as close to Jesus as you once were. You're not praying as hard. You're not spending as much time in your daily private time. You're a little bit more sporadic in your church attendance. But yet you're still doing as good a job as you were before. That's interesting. By the way, as a mathematician, I call this the triangle of grace. The triangle of grace. Almost no one ever falls into sin. Trust me. It almost never happens. Almost never does somebody fall into sin. You, you hear some story about some great preacher or something. He has an affair or something happens. And everybody says, oh, he fell. No, he didn't fall. Here's what happens. He's preaching good sermons. He's going on. But he's not walking close to Jesus. He's getting farther and farther away. And so he's really here on the inside, even though it looks like he's still here on the outside. And then all of a sudden, he takes one more step. He didn't fall. He just takes another step. Be careful. Are you praying as hard as you were when you first started teaching a Sunday school class? Do you still plead with God about your children and your motherhood and your fatherhood? Do you still walk close to Jesus every day, every moment, making sure that the power is there? Or are you already creating the triangle of grace, this period in here where God allows you time. He'll let you slip farther and farther away, and you'll still be as good as you were. It's His grace and His kindness. When I arrived in St. Louis in 1979 to be pastor of a church, one of the greatest pastors in Missouri Baptist ever produced had just a horrible affair, blew it, something in my life taking a grenade and throwing it right in the middle of this beautiful, precious, large church. I arrived. Church members from that church, they went all over St. Louis, all over the association. Lo and behold, the closest friend he ever had joined the church I was pastor of. A couple years went by, I felt comfortable with him. And so one day I took him out and I said, Floyd, I want you to tell me what happened. I mean, this is one of my heroes. This guy had been, I mean, he, he was at the top. I said, Floyd, what happened? He said, all right, Pastor, I'll tell you. He said, for 10 years, he was our pastor. You couldn't go eat a lunch with him without him talking about the Lord, witnessing, without him talking about prayer, 
pouring his heart out. He said when he walked into the pulpit, there was fire. He was, he was, there was something about him. God was all over him. He said, but then, Pastor, after 10 years, the last two years, those of us that were close to him noticed a change. He wasn't talking about the Lord as much. We'd go out to eat. He'd walk into the pulpit. The fire wasn't there. We could sense that something was not right. You see, it looked like he fell into sin. No, he didn't fall into sin. He had two years of slowly slipping into sin. The triangle of grace was granted to him, but he looked the other way. Who's the guy in the Bible that lived in the triangle of grace? Jacob. Jacob is my soulmate in the Bible. The guy was always doing stupid stuff. That's Jacob. Always doing things his own way. The way he wanted, he thought he was smart. He could figure it out. This is Jacob. And finally, God said, I've had it with you, buddy. You're done. I'm going to wrestle you. So God, angel, man, the triple designation of the one that he wrestled with, that's the pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. His own descendants came to wrestle with him. The angel came, and all night long, Jacob wrestled with God. And God was just saying, here's what God was saying to Jacob. This is what you've been doing your whole life, Jacob. You've wanted to do it your way. You thought you could make the decisions. You thought you were the one in charge. It's very interesting. God did not bless Jacob as long as Jacob was wrestling. Go read your Bible. God blessed Jacob when all Jacob was doing was clinging. He was just hanging on. That's when God blessed Jacob. And for the rest of his life, just to remind Jacob, the Lord threw some pieces of his side out. And so every time Jacob would start to think he could do something on his own, oh, 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 he'd be reminded he better get back to clinging to God. Everything hinges on closeness to him. In the private place of prayer, in church, in the word, with friends, with people, always, it all comes out of the relationship with him. My generation, I guess our greatest hero as a pastor was Adrian Rogers. And Adrian Rogers was pastor at Massive Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was such a godly man. When he was a teenager, he was a football player, high school football player, star of his team, and uh, Doing a great job, but boy, he was struggling with God calling him to preach. He really felt it. He sensed it. He just didn't know. And one night after a football game, he was so disturbed that he couldn't hardly get dressed. He was the last one to get dressed. He walked out of the dressing room. He walked across his field, the place of his glory. The place is empty. And he got out to the 50-yard line, and he fell to his knees. And he said, oh, God, if you want me, I'm yours. You can use me. He didn't feel humble enough, so he fell down, spread eagle on his stomach, spread eagle like this. And he said, oh, God, I still don't feel humble enough, but, Lord, if you'll use me, please use me. Finally, he took his finger, and he dug a hole in the ground, a little hole. He stuck his nose in it, and he said, God, I can't get any lower than this. Will you please use me? And Adrian Rogers was one of the most successful men of God I've ever known because he never got more than three feet away from his nose in that hole. He lived his whole life understanding, 
I must give myself to Him. I must be humble. I must live communing with Him. I've got to live right here. No triangle of grace for Adrian Rogers. His private time and his responsibilities stay together. At some point, you have to ask yourself the question, are we merely playing games with God? Or is loving God the most important thing in your life? Do you really believe holiness matters most? Or is it just peripheral? Or is it just secondary? He is worthy to be followed by people who are dead earnest about Him. It should be the way with all of us. That's the way it's always been with the best of us. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest of us all. Uh, Moody was the greatest uh, USA pastor. The greatest Baptist pastor ever was Charles Spurgeon. The great pastor of London. Spurgeon said, we must pursue holiness with an agony of desire. An agony of desire. John Wesley said, my one aim in life, one aim in life is to secure personal holiness. When he was a young man, he began spending two hours a day just communing with Jesus. Two hours a day, just, just reading the Bible, praying, talking to the Lord. He wrote his mother, leisure and I have parted company. And a biographer later added, and they never met again. I have stood in Scotland on the land of McChain, and I have prayed the prayer of the great McChain. Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. Have you ever prayed that in your life? Who's the greatest Christian you think you've ever known? Have you ever prayed, God, make me as holy as he or she is? This is what it means for this to be the most important thing in your life. You look, you pursue, you push, you pray. More important than anything else. And Ambrose, to whom we owe Augustine. Ambrose claimed, if I were standing on a wall between hell and sin. I would leap into hell before I would leap into sin. I cannot say that, but how in the world could a man even say it? How, do, how does he even come to the place he would even think that thought? That can only happen if you have come to the place that the most important thing in your life is loving God, never hurting Him again, never doing anything to disappoint Him. This is what it's all about. Holiness matters most. Say it, please. Holiness matters most. You were made to love Him. Nothing held back, not for the bluebirds versus buzzards. No, you, each one of you in this room, you were meant to love God as much as Mother Teresa did. You, you were created. You have the capacity in you to love God as much as Billy Graham ever did. You have it in you to live like an Ambrose, like I'm a chain. No hesitation, nothing held back. All of life, every day, every moment, holiness matters most. Holiness matters most. Holiness matters most to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him. That's the most important thing in life. Let's say it one more time. Holiness matters most.